as I was listening to uh, President-elect Obama's acceptance speech on Tuesday evening, uh, something that he said in that speech caught my attention. He says, even as we celebrate tonight, one of the challenges that tomorrow will bring are the greatest of our lifetime. Two wars, a planet in peril, the worst financial crisis in a century. Even as we stand here tonight, we know that brave Americans are waking up in the deserts of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan to risk their lives for us. They went on to say, the road ahead will be long and our climb will be steep. If I could just summarize what those words mean, basically what he is saying is that we have experienced great accomplishments. We've elected a new president, and even the first black president in the history of the Western world at that. He's saying, in other words, we have experienced great accomplishments, but then he goes on to say, with great accomplishments come even greater challenges. With great accomplishments come even greater challenges, and I believe that that sentiment would summarize basically the challenge which Joshua sets out before Israel as they stand here on, in Shechem, flanked on two sides by Mount Gerizim and Mount Gibal, and Joshua is addressing the whole assembly of Israel for the last time as their general and their captain and their covenant mediator. He says to Israel, basically, we have experienced great accomplishments. And by the grace of God, you stand where you do today in the land as you have moved up out of slavery in Egypt into a settled existence in Palestine. We've experienced the great accomplishment of 400-year promises made to Abraham. Uh, they have experienced the Lord's hand upon them as they drove out and conquered and killed the Canaanites to possess the land. They have experienced the blessing of partaking of Palestinian inheritance. They are now experiencing the blessing of eating from crops which they did not plant instead of eating the manna which God graciously provided for 40 years. They have experienced great accomplishments. But Joshua now, as he addresses the congregation before he passes on, says to Israel, basically, this is no time to take the foot off the gas. Because as we have experienced these great accomplishments, he goes on to say, we have even greater challenges in front of us. And that great challenge which Joshua sets before Israel is outlined for us in verses 14 and 15 when he calls upon them to fear the Lord, to serve Him in sincerity and truth, and to put away the false gods. In other words, the challenge is what you find in verse 15, which is, choose for yourselves today. Who will you serve? Joshua is basically saying that's a greater challenge than driving out the enemies from the land. It's a greater challenge than surviving in the wilderness. It's a greater challenge, as it were, breaking free from the shackles of slavery in Egypt. The greater challenge which Israel now has as it is a recipient of the blessings of God is to live for him. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The great challenge which is before Israel is the great challenge that we face as Christians. I want us to receive this admonition of Joshua here in verse 14 and 15 as an admonition to the church, to the covenant people of God. It's a very pointed challenge. 
to those who've experienced great blessing. Joshua makes it plain for us what it is today. Choose who you will serve. In order for us to understand that, I want to uh, dig into the text for a moment and to um, outline the twofold basis upon which Israel was to respond to this challenge positively. And there is a, a first basis which really doesn't apply to us. And that first basis of obeying this command here to choose the Lord and to serve Him is the basis of legal covenantal obligation. Not that we're not in the covenant, but we're not in the same national covenant that Israel was. That covenant had very specific obligations. Those were spelled out in chapter 23, for instance, verse 6, where Joshua said, Be firm. Keep all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn to the right hand or to the left. There is the obligation of that national covenant, first of all, that they were obligated to fulfill all of the commands that were written in the book of the law of Moses. As we look at that law, the rabbis said there are 613 statutes in that law. Some of the statutes were moral, as they are outlined in the Ten Commandments and other moral passages or exhortations from the law. And then there are ceremonial commands, which have to do with uh, kosher dieting and sacrifices and feast days and so forth. A kind of holiness, an external holiness, which was required because of the presence of the Lord's dwelling within the temple and the land. And then there was a judicial righteousness, a a, a whole set of laws which were to govern uh, the civil laws of Israel, uh, punishments for crimes and so forth. And, And so Joshua says, this is the legal obligation that's laid out before you today. You are to keep all of the commandments of the law of Moses. The entire experience of Israel was to be an experience of declaring that they and all that they owned was holiness to the Lord. comprehensive, absolute obedience to God's commands outlined in the book of the law of Moses. And there was a function of that obedience. And the function of that obedience was if they obeyed those commands, they got to stay in the land of Palestine. Now, you don't really see that spelled out as much in positive terms here in Joshua 23 or 24. You catch uh, sort of a a glimpse of it in verse 13 of chapter 23, uh, where Moses, or rather Joshua says, if you don't keep these laws, then uh, God will not drive out the nations. There's more to be said about that point. But you see, if you turn that inside out, you see that there is a positive function to obedience that the Lord will drive out their enemies, and that the Lord will cause them to retain the land. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, makes it very clear. Moses said that they are to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgment, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord will bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So the function of obedience for Israel here, as they, as they receive this command to Joshua 20, 14, 24, 14, is that if they keep the command, they will live in the land. And if they don't, there will be, uh, there will be punishments delivered. We already see that towards the end of chapter 23. We didn't read that section this morning, but uh, Joshua says there, It shall come to pass that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats. 
All the threats, if you go back to the law, you will find not only were there blessings for obedience to God, you can see those outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But what you find right alongside those blessings in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 is a whole series of threats. If you do not obey the Lord, here's what will happen. God says, I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. He says that the eye, the sky will be like iron, the earth will be like bronze, the land won't yield its fruit. God will send plagues and famine, diseases and enemies, and they will eventually be hauled off to slavery again in a foreign country. You see, if they didn't keep the law, if they didn't hear Joshua's admonition here in chapter 24, 14, and 15, there would be serious consequences. Now, if you look at verse 19, you see Joshua's assessment of basically their capacity. And their willingness even. Look at 19 of chapter 24. He says, you will not be able to serve the Lord. You see, Joshua basically says, what I'm setting out for you to do today, Israel, to obey the law as a legal obligation to remain in the land perpetually is something that is impossible to you. You see why this is not a basis for us and our obedience this morning? Because Joshua says this is basically a works covenant. If you do it, you earn it. You get the reward because you are obedient to God. Joshua says, by the way, you can't do that. It's impossible to you. And you you, you hear that. You can't do it in Joshua's voice here and in his words in verse 19. You see, well, why in the world would you give the people of God something impossible to do? Why set up a covenant arrangement with the people of Israel that they, they can't possibly keep? Well, the answer is because it was God's will to set up externally and publicly in this national covenant a context for Christ to win your redemption. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says... When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, that what? He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, uh, Paul looks back at that law and he says, the whole point of that law, the whole point of the impossibility of Israel uh, keeping that covenant arrangement was so that God would be able to say, the only way that you are ever going to enter into the real inheritance, which was simply typified by this land of Canaan, is through the obedience of Jesus Christ. You see, it was never in the cards for Israel to retain possession of the land because God knew ahead of time that he couldn't do it. But the whole point was not to, to set them up for failure. The whole point was to set up a covenantal arrangement where Jesus, as the second Adam, would come and win a redemption for us by his obedience to the law. But nonetheless, the, this covenant that Israel enters into and is in fact ratified by Joshua uh, with witnesses and words, as you see that here in verses uh, 22 through 24 and 25, is, uh, Israel was obligated. Israel was obligated to keep this covenant even though they could not. This is not a basis for us to obey these words, though. I want us to be very clear about this because people constantly confuse this. 
And people constantly go back to the Old Testament and read their Bibles and they see this connection between obedience and blessing and obedience and reward. And they say, well, it must be that if, I, if I'm good, God's going to bless me. I hear that all the time. I hear this anecdotally explain, as an explanation for why some Christian businessmen are so successful in their businesses. Is because, well, they've obeyed the law of God. So, so obviously God is required to bless them with more clients and greater income and revenue. You hear this on the, uh, on the TV all the time. Proclaim from pulpits all over that, that the way to blessing and greater riches and material prosperity and enjoyment of the Lord is you obey God. But that's not what the basis for our obedience is, is so that we win rewards from God. Jesus did that for us. And if you want to see how well that goes, just look at Joshua 24 and Joshua's forecast. You won't be able to. Because God's holy. There's no way you're ever going to keep the law. We see at the end of the chapter, uh, Israel could not. They, they did pretty good while Joshua was alive. And as the people who survived remember the great works of the Lord. But after that, you go read the book of Judges. It's a really sad commentary on the ability of fallen people to keep God's comprehensive standards of righteousness. People of God, you're not called to obedience based upon uh, the covenantal arrangement that God set up with Israel. But I want you to see the second basis, and that is the basis upon which we too respond to the admonitions here in Joshua 24. And I've kind of gone out of my way to set this up because I want you to realize that the admonitions of verse 14 and 15 are not simply old covenant commands. They're not simply uh, what Joshua said to Israel. These are words of Joshua to the church. And I want you to see that very important uh, set of beginning words in Joshua 24.14. Now therefore. You see, as we begin to understand how to apply this passage to ourselves as New Covenant believers, it's imperative that we understand what's in view when Joshua says, now therefore. Very similar to the therefores that you read across the New Testament in Paul's writings. Romans chapter 12, 1, one being one of the greatest pivot points in all of Scripture. He's been expounding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's been expounding the great riches which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 12, he pivots from gospel now to obligation, to obedience, to gratitude. And he says, now therefore... I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies living sacrifices holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, people of God, because of what Christ has done, you obey out of gratitude. Joshua's making a similar argument. Look back and see what those words reach to and in this unfolding of the plan of redemption and its history, beginning with verse 2. In the story of God's grace here, it's very... Um, it's a very selective retelling of redemptive history, first of all. And what I would have you to notice about the retelling of the history of God's grace to Israel here is that it accents at every turn the impossibility of grace. Just mark my words as we quickly skip from seeing this scene in the unfolding redemptive history. You see, first of all, that he references their forefather, their great 
spiritual and biological forefather, Abraham. And I want you to notice what he keys in on when he describes Abraham. He says, from ancient times, verse 2 now, chapter 24, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor. And what does the scripture say about them? They served other gods. A remarkable statement, because here Joshua is saying to these Israelites about their hero and their forefather in the faith, your grandfather was an idolater. Abraham is not exalted for his good family values or his civic duties or his... uh, His obedience to God's commandments. Abraham is singled out as an idolater. You see how this story is about the impossibility of God's grace? It's not as if Abraham was on the other side of the river uh, diligently inquiring after the true God. Sending out expeditions to the farthest corners of the earth to find out where the real God was and how he could worship him. He was an idolater and God saved him. Uh, Look at the story of God's grace to Israel, uh, referenced uh, so quickly as as, uh, years and years of of redemptive history are glided over here, as if uh, stepping stones across a creek. Uh, We're told that Abraham is given Isaac and Jacob, and Esau gets Mount Seir, and Jacob, well, they get slavery in Egypt. So, obstacle number one to God's grace is the whole nation is enslaved in Egypt. And obstacle number two that it focuses in on is with Israel standing with its back against the Red Sea. And from the other angle, here are the Egyptians and Pharaoh and the chariots charging after Israel to kill them. There's no place to run to. There's no place to hide. There's no fortification. There's no way on earth that they're going to get out of the jam that they're in. And all of a sudden, the Word of God says that God caused darkness to come between them. And then you know the rest of the story. God delivers His people miraculously and kills their enemies at the same time. In the story of the wilderness, we're confronted with enemies immediately. The Amorites, those are dispatched poised on the brink of entrance into the land, we're reminded of the great difficulty of crossing the Jordan River. And then when we get into the land, the history of God's grace is accented by the immediate opposition. Notice all the lands, all the the nations that are opposed against them, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations. You see the story of God's grace to Israel? As Joshua preaches the law to these Israelites, as they stand in the valley of Shechem, he's saying the only reason why you stand here in your sandals upon the soil of Palestine is because God in his grace has brought you this far. The only reason why you're alive is because God graciously delivered you from the greatest superpower on earth in his day, the Egyptians. The only reason why you're able to cross over the Jordan, this whole massive nation, is by the power of God. The only reason why you possess an inheritance which wasn't even yours is the grace of God. They are to look at the land that they're in as a picture of the gospel. That's what Joshua has just done here in these verses, as he has 
painted a picture of the gospel to the Israelites. And he's saying, you participate in this inheritance by the grace of God. People of God, you participate not in an earthly inheritance which was pictured in the land of Canaan. You participate in the real inheritance as we've already described from Galatians 4. By the grace of God, the same foundation that functioned as the basis of Israel's obedience is the same foundation that functions as the basis of your obedience this morning. So when you hear these commands here, as we work our way through them, again, receive this as God's call to you. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his obedience and because of the fact that he has won your salvation, hear these words of Joshua to Israel, to you. And the first obligation that Joshua lays out here is the quality of our obedience. He says it's to consist in the fear of the Lord. Now to fear the Lord is a command, but it's also a quality. It's an attitude. And we, could, we could explain that negatively, first of all. Psalm 36 talks about unbelievers. And, and what is the key characteristic of an unbeliever according to the Word of God? There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. And that's the key characteristic because Paul cites that passage in Romans chapter 3 verse 18 as a punctuation mark at the end of a whole series of quotations from the Old Testament which describe the comprehensiveness of man's depraved nature. The key characteristic is there is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. We could demonstrate this positively. Exodus 20.20, after Israel has received the law at Sinai, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you, that you may not sin. You see what the fear of the Lord was? And Moses says to Israel, here is the fear of the Lord, is that you remember what it was like to stand before a holy God who has redeemed you and brought you slaves out of Egypt. You remember what it was like to stand before him. That fear of the Lord, that attitude of reverence and of awe and love and trust was the thing that would drive them Not to sin. That's the fear of the Lord. That is the quality of obedience that that Joshua calls upon Israel to ordain. And I want you to know that's not simply an Old Testament concept. As you read through the New Testament, what you find over and over and over again is that the fear of the Lord is to function vibrantly in your spiritual life. Book of Acts. And a number of places in Acts, in the unfolding of the history of the church, you'll find snapshots, which are summaries at the end of a narrative section which describe the church. One of those snapshots is found in Acts 9, verse 31. It says, this is what was going on in the church 
they were living in the fear of the Lord. They were living in the fear of the Lord. What did that mean? It meant that they were preaching the gospel. They were going to church. They were helping the widowless, the, the widows and the orphans in their distress. They were, they were meeting each other's needs. They were walking in obedience to God's commands. They were standing over against the culture which, which hated them. They were fearing the Lord. It was a key characteristic of the apostolic church, walking in the fear of the Lord. And so it's no surprise that that was a key characteristic that with Peter, when he's preaching and teaching the word to Gentiles who are scattered throughout the empire, later on in 1 Peter would say to them, you conduct yourselves here in fear while you are here on the earth. Peter says, the way that you live in this world is to be characterized by the fear of the Lord. He says, this is the perspective. As you look at all the trinkets that the world has to offer, and by the way, there's lots of trinkets here in Southern California. As you look at all of its promises of, of, of satisfaction, if you, if you just buy this car, you wear these clothes, or you live in this neighborhood, or you hang out at these social clubs, or you participate in these cool activities, life will be so much better. All of the things that the world has to offer, Peter says what you're to do is you're to live within that framework in the fear of the Lord so that you don't get sucked into what the world has to offer thinking that it's a viable replacement for God. You can test this morning whether you're walking in that fear. If that's your perspective towards the world. By seeing what concerns you. What concerns you most in your life? What is at the forefront of your thinking for most of your conscious hours of the day? That activities and parties and relationships, all those things are fine within their proper perspective. Is God's kingdom first? Is his worship a priority? Is obeying him, sacrificing for him, taking up the cross and following Jesus as he commands? We can tell very quickly whether the fear of the Lord is the perspective from which we approach the world around us. The fear of the Lord is also the soul of a sanctification. A number of different times this is used in reference to our sanctification, but a major one, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in what do you think he said? The fear of the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord is the proper attitude of respect and awe and reverence that we have towards God, that we love Him so much, that we regard Him so highly, that we would not want to do the least thing to offend Him. Or to put it like this, and I think this is true for most people, I think it's true for most people that we have at least one person in our life that we regard so highly, that we admire, 
There's one person that we would hate to let down. We would hate to bring shame upon. That sometimes we actually do alter our actions accordingly. That is the concept here in terms of how the fear of the Lord practically applies to your sanctification. As you have all the options to sin before you, the fear of the Lord stands in the backdrop, overshadowing all the temptations and the apparent satisfaction that comes from them. And the main thing that becomes uh, the forefront in our thinking is the fear of the Lord. Would we want to let Him down? Would we want to turn our back on all of the good things that God has given to us in Lord Jesus Christ in order to temporarily enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. And that's what Joshua sets before them. This is the enormous challenge. And as you hear this, I, I believe you're beginning to understand why, even though they've had great accomplishments, they have even greater challenges ahead because you know what it's like to live in this world, don't you? You know what it's like to fight against sin. You know what it's like to take uh, the less desirable path sometimes, which is the right one to take. You know how hard it is to turn away from sin uh, because it may make you more popular, it may make life more enjoyable, it may make it more satisfying, it may make it easier, it may help you get ahead. You know what it's like to live in that world. But if you fear the Lord, you turn away from that. And you say, well, Pastor, I'm not sure yet just how specific uh, this applies to our life. How, how specifically, how concretely does this apply? Well, I, I believe what Joshua does is he gives us the general command, and, and then he spells it out. He spells it out in various places in our passage. And, and one of the places he spells out what it means to fear the Lord is in verse 15. When he says, choose for yourselves today who you will serve. Now, uh, what I want us to see from that is that serving the Lord is, is an exclusive command. Because look at what Joshua does. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want you to see the exclusive nature of the call. What, what Joshua is saying is that you can't be all for Jesus and at the same time have your idols on the side. You know, we like to do that. We like to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We like to pretend that somehow it's okay with God if we fudge on Him a little bit. We like to see, well, because after all, what we're doing has good intentions. It's, well, uh, we, it's a well-meaning action. Besides, life's circumstances are so difficult. I can't choose anything else anyway. Even if I wanted to leave this life of this, of this mess behind, I can't do it because my life is so intertwined around that that I can't leave it without great pain and sacrifice to myself. And God would surely understand that me serving my idols at least part-time on the site is okay in view of the fact that these circumstances are overwhelming. 
And what Joshua says, it doesn't matter if they're the old gods or if they're the contemporary gods, the cutting edge gods. He says, either way, you can't have those alongside the Lord. And I want you to hear this morning, people of God, that he says this to you. Mind you, Joshua is not talking to all those uh, people who are lined up and participating in false religions throughout the world. He's not saying this to the people who are at home watching football instead of being at church. He's not saying this to people who are playing 18 rounds on the golf course rather than worshiping the Lord on Sunday morning. He's saying this to the people who have showed up and done their best to get here, to get cleaned up, and to come and sing praises to God, and to hear His Word proclaimed to you people who have taken time out of your busy week to come here today and sit under the preaching of the Word. He says to you, you have to choose. Showing up is not choice enough. He says, you have to choose. Who will you serve today? Who will you serve? That's a very difficult command. It's a greater challenge, I believe. What does that consist in? What consists in obedience to God's commands. Choosing the Lord consists in, first of all, obedience to God's commands. I'm building off of the call to comprehensive obedience. And I'm saying, yes, our call is not to obey uh, the full range of Mosaic covenant commands. Because those are covenantally conditioned. Yes, I believe that. Uh, There are some that apply to us according to the general equity of the law. They are moral in all times and in all situations. They are morally binding obligations. But there's much of that law that just simply doesn't apply to us. But as you turn to the New Testament and you read the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, you begin to understand what it means to serve the Lord through obedience, objective obedience. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus makes the law really hard when he says you're to love your enemies. Remember that stuff he says about obedience being something that's not just external, it's about the heart We read about it this morning in Romans chapter 12. Not just simply stating an objective command, but then taking it the the next step. Outdoing one another in showing honor. Not just putting up with enemies, but giving them a glass of water. You see, that's the righteousness uh, which is indicative of serving the Lord, is that you're following God's commandments and not yours. And why is that so important? Well, it's because it's very simple. Uh, We like to cut deals with the law. We like to cut deals with the law. Especially in this way. We like to uh, follow sort of the external aspects of the law. But then harbor private desires. Or we like to uh, make a good showing that we're doing most of the good things in the law, but keep some things hidden in the closet of our life that we return to and enjoy. And we say, well, nobody else knows about them, so it's no big deal. But see, we like to carve up the law and make it fit us and our situation. And the parts that don't fit us, we throw to the side. But as we read from the law this morning in Romans chapter 12, we can notice uh, just reading that without studying it very long that that doesn't permit that kind of an arrangement. 
What does it mean to choose the Lord today? Well, it means that we, uh, we aim at obedience to all of God's commandments. All of God's commandments. And just to help us as we wind down towards the end of our message this morning to see whether uh, we are actually doing that, uh, Joshua uh, gives us a very significant barometer. Turn back to chapter 23. I want you to see this for yourself. Um, After Joshua had commanded a comprehensive obedience to the objective standards of righteousness contained in the law, uh, here is what he said to see whether they were really loving the Lord and diligently serving them. And it's in verse 12. But but let's let's, let's read, read it from verse 11. Let's do that. He says, Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Now notice the connection. Verse 12, for if you ever go back, okay? He's saying this is what it looks like not to love the Lord. If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out. They will be a snare and a trap to you until you perish from off this good land. Are you seeing uh, what Joshua is saying is the barometer of whether they are fearing the Lord and choosing Him and walking in His ways. He says, you can evaluate that pretty quickly based upon what relationships you keep. Particularly, those who you hold the most intimate relationships of life with. He starts with marriage. He says, if you would marry somebody who's not a believer who's not a part of the covenant people of God, you've already replaced God with an idol and you just didn't see it. You see, the kind of person who would enter into that kind of an intimate relationship with somebody is someone who's already said that the word of God doesn't apply to them. In this one area of their life, God is in a box and his law is out of bounds. Joshua says, if you make that commitment, you are on your way to replacing God. Now Joshua's pretty perceptive here because Joshua knows that the kind of people who can affect us, who are the closest people in our life, are the kind of people, if they're not believers, will steal our affections away from the Lord and we'll end up serving their gods. You see this happen all the time in the church, by the way. You see a believer marry a non-believer and they all say it's going to be okay. They're going to win them over. They're going to bring them into the church. They have the best aspirations. They have the greatest ideas. They have the right goals. They want to see this person saved. But I don't think I have yet seen one of those relationships of two people who are unequally yoked where one of them didn't go the direction of of one of the spouses and one of the religions. If they never remain neutral. And sad to say, in most of the cases that I can think of where a covenant person married a non-covenant person, that person left the covenant. I can rarely think of cases when that didn't happen. Because the people who you are closest to will steal your affections away from your God. And it happens without even knowing it. Joshua says there will be a snare and a trap to you. The language suggests you won't even perceive 
this happening. I would argue that if that's the case, I think it applies on a second level by way of application to the kind of relationships we keep. I'm not saying you can't have relationships with unbelievers. I'm not saying that. We're, of course, called to have relationships with believers. Unbelievers, right? But when those relationships end up causing you to be silent about your beliefs, to compromise your beliefs, in order to maintain that relationship, you just have made your step away from the Lord. And you are at the beginning point of replacing God with another God. Just an anecdotal illustration from my own personal observations this past week on a very controversial proposition. I'm sure you're all aware of Proposition 8. Can't tell you how many people I ran into who voted no on that because, not that I'm into that kind of thing, (laughs) but I have friends who are. Oh, well, that makes it better then, right? You have friends that are. That makes it perfectly understandable that, that we should have laws which completely and thoroughly violate God's standards. Because you have friends. No, what you just did is you compromised your beliefs and you took a stand not with, not with God, but with false religion. The religion of secular humanism, which preaches utter and complete tolerance for anybody except for exclusive, narrow-minded Christians who believe that God and His Word and His standards are final and authoritative. There's no way you'll be able to exclusively serve this God if you keep friendships and relationships in your life that force you to compromise your beliefs and keep silent about them. Joshua calls you to choose the Lord today. He's not saying you can't have any relationship with unbelievers. He's just saying that you better be very upfront with those people about who you are, not offensively. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be mean-spirited and annoying and badgering. But you have to make it clear who you stand with. If you don't make it clear who you stand with, it's impossible for you to be a missionary. That's what a missionary does. A missionary goes into hostile territory in a land full of idolaters and blasphemers and he says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I might give you a cup of cold water. I might babysit your kids for you for free. I might be the best next door neighbor you've ever had. I might bring you potluck dinner over to your house when your family is so busy they can't even make dinner at night. I may spend time outside talking with you across the fence. We may have a great relationship, but you're always going to know where you stand with me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'd really like to see you come meet this Jesus that I know. He loves He loves sinners. He welcomes sinners. He forgives sinners. He pays the penalty for their sin. He invites them to come unto Him and to receive eternal life. But this Jesus is Lord and He has some standards too. We don't live that way. Our house is not serving the Lord. We're not walking in His fear. And we haven't chosen Him today. People of God, I said... We've had great accomplishments, but we've also got great challenges. 
We've experienced great things. We've been sovereignly regenerated. We know what it's like to walk out of darkness. We know what it's like to to enjoy the liberation from sin that comes through the gospel. We know what it is to be thrilled to know that there's such a thing as a God who forgives sins and we don't have to hide all these bad things in the closet anymore. But we can go straight to God and we can get all that stuff off our chest and clean it out of our system and say, Lord, take this sin and forgive it. Nothing like knowing that. There's nothing like knowing that, that you can take every dark, horrible thing to God, and He forgives it. That's a great thing to experience. But now, that comes with a challenge. Jesus must be Lord of your life. I've already talked this morning at great lengths how we live in a fallen world that surrounds us with its temptations. Your challenge this morning, people of God, is to receive this admonition of Joshua. On the same basis that Israel did on that second level, based upon grace in Christ, choose today. Who will you serve? Let's pray.